Well, again, we're glad that you're here at Grace. Thanks for being here, and uh, we appreciate those in the room, but also those at Paulding uh, watching, and also people on the internet who tune in as well. Thanks for being here. Uh, and again, we're in this question series uh, where we've asked our community uh, if they have any questions about God, the Bible, or faith, or Christianity, or anything like that, uh, that we would, would answer those questions. That's what we're doing. We've had many people uh, coming in to, to hear these answers. And so whether you're an agnostic or an atheist or a humanist or anything else, uh, we're glad that you're with us and we want to provide a safe place uh, for you to get the answers to your questions. And there's a reason for that. Uh, as Christians, there are a lot of people that question Christianity and, and some of those are good, honest questions and we want to engage and interact and we feel like everybody benefits from that. We also know that there's a lot of people that are kind of hostile to the Christian faith. If you've spent any amount of time on a university campus, you, you've probably seen a little bit of that. As a matter of fact, uh, one of our attenders named Rachel, who lives in Toledo, uh, Luke Weishart's girlfriend, uh, she's a student at the University of Toledo. And just this last week, uh, she went to her poetry class. Uh, it's kind of odd, a poetry class. And while she was there... Uh, the, the, instruct, the professor said that uh, religious people, all religious people are illogical because they believe in a God they cannot prove and they believe in an afterlife that they can't prove. This professor, and again, this is a poetry class, this professor went on to say that all Christians were gullible and that you can, they even kind of gave evidence of their own gullibility in that they call themselves children of God. And so sometimes you get that kind of a pushback and that kind of you know, little hostility there. And, uh, and that's okay for us as Christians. We just want to be able to engage with people. And uh, I, I know I've had that same experience of having a classroom argument with a professor at uh, Colorado State. So, you know, that, that was a philosophy class. But hey, Things, things like that happen. We want, we are called by God to be equipped to give an answer for people who ask the reason of the hope that we have. That's 1 Peter 3.15, and that's exactly what we're doing. So we feel everybody benefits, Christians, non-believers. We're all here and uh, wanting to discover truth about God. So let's get to the questions. Um, here, here's one, and it kind of here's some questions that have a little bit to do with God's character. And so let's, let's dive right in. This one uh, says this, God, or I'm sorry, does God tempt us with things that he doesn't plan on giving us? And uh, the answer to that, there's actually a, a paragraph in the Bible that answers that specifically, and it's in James 1, beginning in verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of, of lights. And it continues from there. So what James is teaching us is that God does not tempt us, God does not defraud us, does not 
offer us things just that, that he's not going to give us to create. As a matter of fact, we're told that, that sin is a result of our loss or maybe our covetous, just, our covetous nature, that we want things that we don't have. And really, we should, as followers of Christ, we should be content uh, with what God has given us and also have confidence and joy uh, being a follower. Here's another question that along a little bit the same lines, and this one starts out with a statement before the question. I believe this was from a 16-year-old young man. It says, I cannot ask a non-existent God a question, but if there was a Christian God, I would ask, why kill and ask your followers to kill so many people? Well, just to deal with the statement, we believe God does exist, and actually we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and so if this young man is listening, that might be something that would interest him. We're saying there's scientific evidence for the existence of God. We talked about the universe and the fact that we now know it had a beginning, needs to have a cause. We talked about the anthropic principle. Uh, these are scientific evidences uh, for God. We, what we have, and we, we just scratched the surface. There's a whole bunch of things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about all people who don't believe in God, believe in evolution. We didn't talk about all the problems of evolution um, like irreducible complexity, that's an issue that evolution cannot answer. The lack of transitionary fossils uh, all over the world, even in isolated places like Australia, there's no transitionary fossils for kangaroos for them to show that they've evolved. And on and on and on, we, we see this as a reality all around us. And that's not all, the complexity of DNA. We used to not realize how complex... Uh, living organisms were, especially all the information that's contained in DNA. Now we realize that's super complex. Uh, other issues are the limits on species. We understand that some species like cats are kind of narrow band and some are a little more broad band like dogs or you can have a small dog or you know a, a very big dog. But you can't have a dog the size of a camel. Uh, you can't ever breed a dog with a hoof or a dog with wings, or a dog with horns. That just doesn't happen. There are limits on species. We know that because there's none of that information is carried in their DNA, and there's no way to put it in there. We never knew that before. So as science discovers more, we have more evidences that evolution is wrong. It's just the best naturalistic reason for what we see. But again, we talked about naturalism Plus, you know, and we, those kinds of, things. the other thing is, as we've created better microscopes, you know, we realize that simple organisms aren't simple. We, we look at these very simple celled, single celled organisms, and we thought these are very, we were taught back when I was in school, these are very simple. But now as our uh, microscopes have increased in power, I've, heard one scientist describe it that what's going on in a single cell organism is about like what's going on in the city of Chicago in a day. It's very, very complex. And the more we learn, the more complex it is. This does not jive with what evolution teaches us. The whole, you know, and I can go on and on, but I won't because that, that's not even the question. That's just dealing with the premise that led to the question. So let's get to the question. What about killing and God telling people to kill? And there's a couple things that I want to peel off here. First of all, 
it's, there's kind of a judgment here that all killing is wrong. And so before I get to this question, we just have to recognize that not all killing is wrong. Some of this is because of a, a bad translation in the King James Version for modern readers. In 1611, uh, the sixth commandment was translated as thou shalt not kill. But really, um, all modern translations, because this Hebrew word is very specific, it's not kill, it's murder. So any modern translations that retranslate from the Greek going back to first, second, and century, they'll say, no, this, uh, this Hebrew word, I'm sorry, this Hebrew word would say murder. It's thou shall not murder, don't murder, you shall not murder is actually the command. Because we all recognize that some killing we wouldn't necessarily say is wrong. For example... Um, execution. If there's moral, just laws that are violated, if it's serious enough, enough, it can be moral to execute someone. That's what the Bible tells us, and, and most people in our country would agree with that. The same thing in warfare. If you're fighting a just war, which can be a big question, but if your war is just, then killing a, com a combatant against you is not considered wrong. Okay, so with that behind us, now we're ready to answer the question. What about all the killing in the, that God does you know, or, or in the Old Testament? And we had several questions along these lines. I just picked one of them. But basically the questions are questioning one of two things. One is they're saying killing in the sense of in the Old Testament, sometimes punishment for some things that are wrong is Death is prescribed, that that's the punishment for the wrongdoing. And, and the answer to that is simply, well, we've just established that capital punishment, killing somebody for violating laws that are serious, is not always wrong. And this is teaching us something about that God teaches us all through the Old Testament, and that is that wrong or sin is much more serious than we ever think it is. So if... There's a just reason for killing somebody for violating a law. Well, then God can tell us what that is, and God can make that pronouncement, and that's the way it would be, and that's the way it was for a certain time in Jewish history. And if God says it, it would be right. We could understand that because we say the same thing in our own society. The second thing that people point to when they're talking about God killing is they would, they would uh, view, like, for example, when... The Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. God instructed them to kill everybody. And so people would say, you know, how could God do that? But what we find out also from reading the Bible, if you just keep on reading, you'll realize that God told the Israelites to do that to the, people, the Amorites who lived in Canaan because God was judging 400 years of their sin. Sins like... Worshiping false gods, bestiality, infant sacrifice, all those things were happening in that culture. It was happening for hundreds of years and God pronounced judgment on them. And part of that judgment is that Israel would come in and defeat them. And by the way, God judged Israel the same way that enemies came in and defeated them. But then people say, well, why did God say to kill them? Well, first of all, God did say that. Secondly, we know that they didn't actually kill everybody because God also said, and by the way, after you go in and take over, you know, you, you kill them all. We think that mainly applied to combatants because then he says, and by the way, don't intermarry with them. Well, then that applies that they're not 
all dead. And then the other thing is we have examples like Rahab. Rahab lived in Canaan at that time. In Jericho, she was an Amorite. And as she lived there, she didn't go with them. She decided, oh, I'm going to go with God. She turned to God. And because of that, she was spared. And not only did she just become a God follower... She became a hero of our faith. She's mentioned in the New Testament. She became part of the lineage of Christ. She was a Canaanite who was under judgment. And so these are the two areas, killing because of uh, the death penalty for some type of sin or killing uh, as a result of this kind of warfare where God pronounced judgment. But both of those really fall into the same category. God pronounced judgment on people for their sin. Both of those were limited cases that only happened at a specific time back in the Old Testament. And neither one of those things are applicable today. God doesn't tell us to kill anybody now. This is way different, for example, than the Koran. And I think a lot of times when people ask this question, they, we get that question a lot more now because of all the killing and uh, the, uh, the terrorism and stuff that's done by extreme Islamic people, you know, that's happening. And it's kind of like giving, to try to give Christianity a black eye. But this, it's completely different. Christianity, this killing, was in judgment for certain sins in a time in the Old Testament. That time has passed. No longer applicable today. Where the Quran is telling followers of Muhammad to kill in order to convert people for all time. That you put them to the sword. They either convert or they submit to Islam or they die. Those are the options. That that's how Islam spreads through warfare. And so that's why we see that it's not a big stretch. Islam is not a religion of peace. It's a religion in its history and in currently that spreads through violence and strife. Christianity is just the opposite of that. Christianity is love your neighbors. Christianity is all people are created equal. Respect everybody. But that doesn't mean that everybody's right. We still preach the truth. So hopefully that kind of clears that up a little bit. There's, uh, we've got some other questions that kind of have to do with uh, belief and faith and, and what that's all about, which are great questions. Here's one of them here. It goes this way, I certainly believe in God and that we live in a miraculous world created by God. I also believe that Jesus died on the cross as our personal savior. However, I do not commit myself to coming to church every week. Don't read the Bible or even pray as I should. The question everyone wants to know is, how can I get into heaven? Are my actions or lack of actions overriding my belief in God? Would I be considered a Christian? And so here a person just saying, hey, I believe this stuff, but I, I don't go to church, I don't read the Bible, I don't pray. You know, what, what's, am I still a Christian? So first thing, we got to understand that um, how much you come to church or how much you pray or whether you read the Bible, that's not what makes you a Christian. Putting your faith in Christ in is. But that is what Christians do. You know, you just got to know that. Christians do these things. And really it comes down to when you say you believe. I believe 
that God created the world and I believe Jesus died as my personal savior. The question is, believe, what do you mean when you say belief? When you say belief, the minimum that you probably mean is that you believe it's true that God created the world and that it's true that Jesus died for your sins. That is not biblical belief. Biblical belief goes beyond that. And I'll give you an example also from James in James of chapter 2 beginning with verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So here's James trying to explain something. He uses two words in that passage, believe and faith. And these have the same common root word. And what he's saying, what he's telling us, sheds a lot of light on this question. If our belief in God is simply that we believe it's true that God created the world, and we believe it's true that historically Jesus came and died on the cross for our personal sins, that is not enough to be a Christian, just the intellectual thinking that that's true. Belief in the Bible takes another step. That's why a lot of times I use the word trust. Belief in the Bible is saying not only that you believe that those things are true, but that you place your life, you place your trust, you place all your eggs in that basket, that you want to follow God, that he's done this for you, that that's the only way you can be reconciled to God. And then when you really believe that way, it changes your life. You cannot have biblical belief and your life not change at all. It'll change you from the inside out. It will change how you think about things and God and life in general. And it will eventually also change your actions on the outside. That's biblical belief. Impacts our life. Changes us. It's more than intellectual. So back to the question. If by belief you mean just that you think it's true then that means that you're not a Christian yet. If by belief you mean, no, I not only think it's true, but I've placed my trust and I want to follow God, then you are. But if you have put your faith in Christ and you, you're trusting him for your salvation, you'll want to follow him. You will want to read the Bible because you'll, you'll want to study the Bible or come to church where we're talking about the Bible to learn more about God. You'll want to talk to God. You'll want to hang out with other people who believe in God. You'll want to follow God in some of the things you should do, like, like get baptized, uh, you know, and, and you know, take communion. You just want to do these things. That's what followers of Christ do. Followers of Christ have a desire to know God. It's kind of funny because people will talk about heaven, and it'll be like this. Yeah, I intellectually assent to that. I think it's true God did that, and I can't wait to go to heaven so I can be with some relative who has died. We go to heaven, although that, you know, to be with other people who follow God. But we go to heaven to spend an eternity with God. If you don't want to spend any time with God now, then are you sure you want heaven, which is an eternity with God? 
And, and I'm telling you, you do. But that's what you need to, to think through. You know, if, if you really want to go to heaven and spend eternity with God, you'll want to spend time with him now. And so we just want to kind of wrestle those things out. We had some other uh, questions. Uh, and some of these questions can be just intellectual and some can be very personal. And sometimes you don't always know. Here's one. It says, if a person believes and they commit suicide, do they still go to heaven? If a person believes and they commit suicide, do they still go to heaven? So first of all, I just want to say that, that Scripture is telling us that suicide is wrong. And so I think the question is kind of coming from, hey, if a person says they believe in Christ, but they do this horrendous wrong thing at the end of their life, can they go to heaven? Well, the Bible says suicide is wrong, but committing suicide wouldn't keep a true believer out of heaven. Again, if we're talking about belief in the way we just described it, biblical belief, where their trust is in Christ. Because that's what saves us. Not committing a sin before we die. We're all sinners. We all will probably have unconfessed sin when we die. And some will be more serious than others. But we're all sinners saved by grace. And if you've truly placed your trust in Christ alone, all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. You know, and, you, and if it's true belief, you can't lose it. We had some questions about that. Well, can you lose your salvation? Well, if it's just intellectual assent, you never had salvation. But if you truly are trusting in Christ, you can't lose your salvation. That's the difference somebody brought up in one of the questions, uh, Hebrews 4. And, that, and that's what's kind of, in a nutshell, simplistically going on there. Here's another question. In the Catholic faith, it's taught that when babies are baptized, original sin that we get from Adam and Eve is removed and they become a child of God and can, and can go to heaven if they die. Without being baptized, they can't and just go into limbo. What's the Bible teach about this? Well, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is no infant baptism. That never shows up in the Bible ever. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. All those things, which is like limbo, all purgatory is, all those things are unbiblical. They're not in the Bible. The Bible does not teach that, and they're wrong. Now, the question, so, and the Catholic Church teaches those things. Catholic Church also teaches that we're born with original sin. That's true. We're born with a sin nature. So this is a great question. If we're born with a sin nature and we die as an infant, then without, you know, if infant baptism isn't a thing in the Bible, then we're, what's our position? What's the deal there? Now, and that's a great question. And the Bible answers it indirectly. And I think there's a reason for that that I'll get back to in a moment. But let me just give you the passages of the Bible that we deduce or we reason from to get the, the answer that yes, infants, all infants, no matter wh whether they're from Christian families or not, go to heaven when they die. First of all, in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 12, we have uh, David lost a child. Remember, David wrote part of the Old Testament. 
He loses his child in judgment because he committed sin with Bathsheba, if you remember the story. And then the story talks about how he's, you know, praying to God about this before his child dies. And then he finds out that the baby had died, as God said was going to happen. And then he says something. He says, I will, and he, uses, he says he comforts himself with the thought that he will be with his child in heaven. Right, so if David, writer of scripture, is saying, is comforting himself by knowing that he will be rejoined with his infant baby in heaven, then we know David believed that. He wrote scripture. That's a reason for us to believe it too. Uh, there's other passages in, in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 139 uh, talks about an unborn uh, a baby who is created and, and and its name is written in God's book. Um, Isaiah 7, 16 uh, talks about an age of accountability uh, where, where they're accountable morally. We know all through Christ's ministry, remember, children would try to come to Jesus and, and the disciples were kind of like, no, no, he's got bigger fish to fry. And Jesus would also say, no, permit the children, like in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 14. But there's a, another indication that I want... And it's from a verse that we actually talked about uh, in one of the weeks before. It's from Romans 1. And you'll remember this. I've been here the last few weeks. Paul says this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, this is Paul reasoning. He's saying, hey... All men, all people, he's saying, just by virtue of their, God's created, created us to be rational beings who can reason. Any of us, all people in the world can get up, look around at nature and deduce that there's a God. Because there's order, there's design, there's balance. Design and order never come from chaos, it never just happens. There's always a designer and so we can get that there is a God. Now that doesn't tell us much about God, just that every man should be able to look at nature and say, yeah, there's a higher power who created. But here's the point. And because of that, Paul's saying, they're without excuse if they, turn, if they don't believe in God, they're without excuse. Well, you flip that around and that would mean, so if you can't look around and deduce with reasoning that there is a God, that you do have an excuse so no adults, no one has an excuse. But we would say an infant or maybe somebody that's mentally impaired would have an excuse because they can't look around and reason because they don't have reasoning capacity. So that would be another indication for us. But here's the deal. Although the Bible, so we very much believe that infants go to heaven and has nothing to do with whether they've been baptized or not because infants shouldn't be baptized. But the Bible's answering it indirectly. There's no passage in the Bible that just clearly outright says, hey, if babies die, they automatically go to heaven. Even though we believe that's true from these other passages. And I think there's a reason for that. If there was a verse that said that, all babies who die go to heaven, which we believe is true. But if that was stated very clearly, I think what would happen is that there would be all kinds of abuses. Because here's what people would think. If this infant dies, they automatically go to heaven to God eternally, which we think is true. 
But if the infant lives and grows up to be an adult, then all of a sudden it's 50-50. They may put their faith and trust in Christ. They may look around and say there's a God and seek him out. Or they may not. So the only sure way is to die as an infant. Well, you could see the abuses that could happen if people were reading a verse in the Bible like that. Does that make sense? So I think there's a reason that God teaches us this indirectly rather than directly, but I believe the truth remains, if that makes sense. And here's another thing I want to say for the, those who this may be a more tender issue with because there have been members of our church family, our brothers and sisters who have lost children, babies. When a child dies and spends eternity with God, that's not a tragedy for the child. It's a tragedy for us. When a child dies and spends eternity with God in heaven, God loves that child more than we do. The child's not missing anything. It's not a tragedy for the baby. It's a tra tragedy for us who lost our babies. Does that make sense? Another, another question. I wanted to get to some questions which really deal with a, a huge um, issue, belief in our society. And really it all ties to something called pluralism, which I'll explain in a minute. But here, here's a couple of questions that are representative of even more questions. It goes like this. Here, here's one of them. Why do all organized religions claim to be the right one and differ enough to start wars and unrest, violence and hatred of those who are slightly different? That's one question. Here's another question from somebody else. How much sleep have you lost over whether you're going to hell because Islam is the true religion? If the answer is little to none, realizing they would answer similarly, doesn't that say more about the possibility that both religions are not factually correct and to the last part of that second question I would say well no that would be like saying if you ask two different people what two plus two was and the first person said four and the second person said five and thought they were right if the second person said five and thought they were right then you couldn't know that the first one was right no we would say there's right and wrong answers that all truth is exclusive. When one thing is true, the other things aren't true that contradict it. So it's that simple. But here's what's going on that I want to explain in a little more detail. There's this, the pluralism just means many answers. There's not one answer, there's many answers. That's pluralism. And so religious pluralism kind of fits into that. And it's been around for a long time. But recently, it's really gained a lot of steam where in our society in America, a lot of people are deeply invested in religious pluralism. And that says there are many ways to God. And sort of the classic person that maybe started this uh, popularity of this might have been Oprah Winfrey about 10 years ago when she you know, was very emphatic to say all religions are just different ways of getting to the same God. How many of you have heard something like that? You know, all you can't say one religion is right. All religions are, are right, or there's many ways to God, or all religions are just different paths to the same God. It, 
the problem with that is that that's a, a false deduction. All truth is exclusive. All religions are mutually exclusive. Let me try to illustrate that. Let's say uh, between services, before this service started, I was out in the atrium. And there was a couple I know, and they come up, and I, and I greet this couple, husband and wife. And then let's say I ask the wife, they're both standing there, but I turn to the wife and I say, are you pregnant? First of all, I would never do that. <laughs> because I learned early in ministry to never ask a woman if she's pregnant unless you actually see a baby emerging from her womb. And then there's so much excitement, even if you're wrong, nobody notices. So I would never ask that question. But let's just say I ask the question, hey, are you pregnant? And what if, it, as I ask the question, at the same time, the wife says yes, and the husband says no? You know, besides the fact that I got a little marital counseling to do, but, but I just wouldn't walk away and say, oh, that makes sense. Thanks. I would stand there and go, what? You know, what's going on there? Because one person is right and the other person is wrong. There is an answer. And so then I would be going, well, which one is right? See, that's the problem with pluralism. Truth is truth. And truth is always exclusive. See, pluralists hate Christianity. Because Christianity says there's one way. And they accuse Christianity. How can you make that truth claim. That's wrong of you to do that. It's like this. Christians say one way. And pluralists hate that. And they look at it. They say that's wrong. You can't say that. You know, you're absolutely wrong. And they say, no, as a matter of fact, there are many ways. So one way or many ways. So they're right when we say one way, this is a truth claim, an exclusive truth claim. They're, they're correct in that. But here's what they always miss. This is also a truth claim that is exclusive. If they say there's many ways, then this is wrong. So this truth claim is excluding this truth claim, just like this truth claim is excluding this truth claim. Does that make sense? Now, here's what happens in our society. Religious pluralism is so prevalent in our society, people have then taken this because they start realizing, people who are logical thinkers start realizing, hold it, many ways to God. All these religions, they, they start realizing, Oprah can't be right here because all these religions say they're the only way. So if they were right, the other ones couldn't be right. So here's what they do. They go, oh, religious pluralists a lot of times then take this other leap and they say, can't know. They become agnostics. They're saying, we can't, it's impossible for us to know. We cannot know. We're saying one way and they say, no, that can't be right. But this is also a truth claim. You just got to know that. Saying you can't know is saying that everybody who says you can know is wrong. So it's an exclusive truth claim. They're doing the same thing that Christians do. It's just kind of hidden. And, and we say, well, no, they wouldn't really say that's wrong. 
they would just say you can't know it's right. But that is also a truth claim. Let me explain it this way. I got props. Okay, so we're saying God revealed himself. We're saying there's one way and there's a way that we can know that. God revealed himself. Kind of like Romans 1 is talking about God revealed himself in nature just that we would know there's a God. We would reason there has to be a God. But that's really not enough to save us. God's let us know that he exists through general revelation. But then he's revealed himself specifically in two main ways. His word, the Bible, and Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting because if you just deduce this logically, if God created us and if we're actually capable of reason, we're thinking people, thinking creatures, then it would make sense that if we could reason that God would reveal himself to us and communicate with us. And we're saying he's done that. He's revealed himself in general that he exists in the universe. Order, balance, everything that we see. And then he's revealed himself specifically. We would expect God to reveal himself specifically. Ironically, the way he's done that is through the Bible, which in all of world history is the number one selling book, the number one book in the whole world. And it's the number one book today and last year and the year before and every year. It's always the number one book. Interesting, he reveals himself by a book and it's the most popular book in history. Well, that would kind of make sense if God did it. Oh, and the other way he revealed himself is through Jesus Christ, who happens to be the most popular person in all of history and the most influential person in all of history. Amazing. That's what we would expect from God. So we're saying God has revealed himself, but then other people say, no, that's wrong. God has not. We can't know. God has not revealed himself. Because if God revealed himself, we can know. But these people are saying we can't know. God has not revealed himself. And they say, you're saying God, that's a truth statement. Right. That's an exclusive truth statement. Right. But this is a truth statement. And it's also exclusive. One's right and one's wrong. One has to be right and one has to be wrong. But see... They make it sound like, oh, we're doing something exclusive, and they're not. But they're doing the same thing by saying God has not revealed himself, and anybody who thinks he has is wrong. Does that make sense? Are, are my props working for you? All right. Okay. So we just, we just have, to, we have to get that. So anytime we're dealing with the pluralists, they're having the same exclusive truth statements. They just don't want to admit it. They want to say, oh, no, we're not doing that. You're doing it. They're doing the exact same thing. So we just have to know that. Here's the deal. If Christianity is right, every other religion in the world is wrong. By the way, if Islam is right, every other religion in the world is wrong. I mean, religions are mutually exclusive. Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive truth statement. So either Jesus or Oprah 
can be right. They both can't be right. It's either Jesus or Oprah in those two statements. And you have to pick. But here's what you can't do. Don't use the cliche, we can't know, to keep you from doing the work of investigating which one of those statements are true. Because that's just being lazy. I think a lot of times agnostics, they just kind of throw out the, oh, we can't know, because that just saves them a whole ton of investigation. Oh, yeah, all these religions, they're all competing, they're all saying different things. Right, right, right. Therefore, we can't know. Wrong. And so I don't have to figure it out. Wrong. Figure it out. Don't rely on a cliche. Dive in. It's amazing that pluralism has caught on so deeply recently in our culture. People have made it where it's wrong to say somebody's wrong. But that's the way truth is. When truth is, is truth, everything else is wrong. It's just like mathematics. It's just like 2 plus 2. There's truth about God that we can know. And, and everything else is wrong. And there's not all these different ways to God. If there were different ways, Jesus would be wrong. If there were different ways, Christianity, by the way, would make absolutely no sense. Let me explain that. If there wasn't just one way, and that's through the death of Christ, if that wasn't the only way, Christianity wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense at all. It, it's like uh, a story, uh, illustration I shared a few years ago. It'd be like if my son Zach and I were walking in one of the fields behind our house, and we look in the distance, and three-quarters of a mile away, we see that there's a house on fire. And there's a bunch of people in the upper stories, and they're screaming. And we know that house is filled with people, and it only has one door, and the door's on fire. These people are trapped, and they can't get out. And so Zach turns to me. I'm his dad, and, he, and he's faster than I am, and, and time is of the essence. And he says, and we start running, and he says, Dad, I'm going to go ahead on. And I'm going to knock the door down. The door's on fire. And I say, Zach, if you bust in that door, you're going to die in the fire. And he says, but that's the only way to, to get the people out. And so I can see as a dad talking to my only son, I can see maybe that I'm saying, okay, go. I mean, at least it makes sense, the sacrifice. Let's rewind that. What if the house is building and there's many ways that the house is burning and there's many ways, there's 63 ways to get out of the house. And some of them are real easy. And then Zach says, hey, I'm going to run ahead and I'm going to bust down this burning door and sacrifice myself to make a 64th way. As a dad, I'm like, that's nuts. No, I tackle him, right? That's, that's not clear thinking. There's 63 other ways out of the house. You see, if there's more than just one way, God would not have had to sacrifice his son. 
Jesus said the only way. And it makes logical sense. If God is righteous, if God is holy, which we would expect him to be, if God is, stands for justice, if he is perfectly just, we would expect God to be like that. But if you're righteous and holy and you're perfectly just, that means you have a holy, righteous standard. And when it's violated, that needs to be punished or there wouldn't be justice. So God says, sin's serious. That's why the seriousness of the Old Testament laws, it's to teach us something, to teach the whole world. The Israelite people were teaching all of us, sin is a big deal. Sin matters. Sin is serious, way more serious than we think. But because God loves us, he creates a way of escape. A way that we can escape the penalty that we all deserve. All of us in the world, every one of us, we're all in the same boat. We're very inclusive as Christians. We're all the same sinners that deserve punishment from God. But because God loves us, he offers a way. All of us, that was costly. It was his son breaking down the door. His son sacrificing his life, taking our punishment on himself. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He didn't have any sin of his own. And yet he died. He's the only one therefore qualified to die for anybody else's sin because he had none of his own. And he died for all of us. Infinite God allowed his creation to torture and kill him to make a way that we could be forgiven and justice could still be served in God's universe. But we have to respond with belief. And it's more than just, hey, I, I believe it's true. Hey, I've been thinking about this. I think there is a God. And historically, can't get around Jesus. I think he did die for sins. That's not enough. That's great. That's, you're almost there. But just after you believe that it's true, you need to then Place your faith. Place your life in God's hands. Love him back for the way he has loved you at great cost. Respond to him. With an, and you can only do that sincerely. You can only trust in Christ like that if you want to follow him. If you want to find out, you know, if you want to follow him, you'll want to find out more about him. You want to hang out with other people that know about him. You'll want to tell others who don't know about him about God. That's what we do, why we do what we do here at Grace. You know, it's why we do a question series. So, hey, you have questions about God? Come and get answers. That's why we invite people to church. Come and get answers. We're going to wrap this up next week. Next week's Easter. Maybe the first or second best time in the whole year to invite somebody to come to church. Because people, they're curious about God. Invite them. Next Sunday, we're going to wrap this series up. And we have a, a Sunday service design. It, it'll, it's, it's one perfect to invite somebody to. We're excited about it. And we want you to, to be able to do that. Why? Because we care for other people. Why? Because our Savior told us to love other people. 
And the best thing we can do for them is introduce them to a Savior who loves them and has provided a way for them to spend an eternity with him forever. I'm going to have Jay come, and he's going to close us in a, in a song. And, and the song is, uh, I Surrender All. It's actually a song that means a whole lot to a bunch of us here, kind of an older song that a lot of us grew up on. It just talks about us surrendering to God. And uh, as we stand and, and he leads us in that, I, I want you to just know this. If you're here and you have more questions about God and, and you're thinking, hey, I, I'm going to rethink this or, hey, I want to do some more investigation. Hey, I have some more questions to be answered or, hey, I'm ready. I'm in. I, I want to, to come into this saving knowledge. I, I want to really put my trust in Christ. If you're ready to do that today or you need more information or you want to set up a meeting or whatever, during the song while Jay's singing, I want you to just go over here to room one. I'm going to go over there, and I'll meet you there, and some of the other pastors will be there. We, we just want to help you out. You set the pace. You just, we just want to give you whatever you need to take that next step. Let's stand together.